the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast, we have a guest with a fascinating background in the alts world. Robert Picard, the head of Alternatives at Hightower, a wealth management platform with over $117 billion in AUM, has over 32 years of experience on the buy side and sell side in the alts world, and came on the podcast to talk about all that. He's worked with top-tier asset managers, built private wealth units for banks, and is now building out Hightower's expansive alts capabilities in-house to provide bespoke, sophisticated solutions for some of the industry's best wealth managers. Robert was recently First Republic's MD and Head of Alternative Investments, where he consolidated two alternative investment businesses into one platform and generated meaningful growth in wealth management team participation in alts and fund offerings across all asset classes. Prior to that, he founded and was CEO of the Rumson Ridge Group, consultancy focused on building alternative investment platforms, and prior to Rumson Ridge, he held senior leadership positions at InfraHedge, Lixor, Optima Fund Management, and the Carlisle Group, Rock Creek Group. Robert and I had a thought-provoking conversation about the evolution of alts and the importance of alts in an investor's portfolio. We drilled down on how an expert like Robert performs manager due diligence and what he looks for in a successful manager, which is becoming increasingly important as many new managers enter the alts world and as new allocators look to invest into funds. Thanks, Robert, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast for a fascinating conversation. We're going mainstream. Robert, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Michael, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. You have a fantastic and quite fascinating background in the alt space over past 25 plus years, working top tier asset managers, building private wealth units for banks, and now building out high towers alts capabilities. We'd love to hear how you got into the alt space and what excites you most about it. I would suggest that my arrival into alternatives was quite frankly the sum of many years of experience and always my desire to be able to add meaningful value and always drift towards the most sophisticated investment strategies and opportunities that were made available in the investment space. I started my career trading Swiss franc dollar yen convertible bonds, moved on to global equity derivatives, structured products, and eventually over to proprietary trading and into hedge funds and diligence on hedge funds because I had the skill set to do that work. But one of the reasons why I've always been interested in migrating towards alternatives and or the more sophisticated strategies was, and they often say your adult life is determined by your childhood. Back in the 1970s, my dad lost his job during the recession. And I experienced as a child seeing him to a certain degree disintermediated and or disrupted in the workforce. And ultimately it worked out well. He ended up opening up the office for Donaldson Lufkin Generat in Geneva, Switzerland. But one of the things that that taught me at an early age was you need to add value and you need to make a meaningful difference. And from then on, it was always my goal to migrate towards the more complicated, sophisticated strategies, as I stated earlier. That's a fascinating jumping off point into when you think about alts, what does it add 
to an investor's portfolio, but also you're working on the advisor side. There's some sort of intangible addition to the business building side of finance wealth management too. I'd love to hear how you think about that in the context of adding value. So it's really interesting. Going back to traditional portfolio management, you have your equity investment, you have your fixed income investment, generally listed securities. And with the evolution and sophistication of information flow, with the benefit of technology, suddenly there's this incredible opportunity to discover and bridge the inefficiencies in the marketplace, and specifically the private markets. So where equities and fixed income are highly efficient, well reported on, the private markets, whether it be real estate, whether it be private equity, venture capital, private credit, those areas are obviously, there's much less information available historically. And that's where there can be a meaningful edge that can be established by sophisticated investors. And those opportunities, I believe, add significant value to a mass affluent investment portfolio where you really want to have that benefit of not only diversification, but that additional added return, meaning that extra return, meaning you have your traditional equity and fixed income, but the private part of your portfolio, the alternatives part, to a certain degree is less liquid. And for that illiquidity, you need to be rewarded. And that reward has to come in the form of higher risk-adjusted returns, which will ultimately benefit the overall portfolio for the typical high net worth investor. So on that point, there's a few different things I want to get into. One is the increasing exposure to private markets. But before we get there, I think it's helpful and interesting to talk about some of the merits, but also the flip side of it too. You talk about getting paid for that risk premium of having illiquidity. Much of the alt space, let's talk about private companies, so direct private investments, private equity ventures are part of that too. Those are equity investments. They're illiquid relative to the liquid side of your portfolio. How do you think about balancing both illiquidity, getting paid for taking that risk in form of higher returns, but also correlation? Because private and public equities are still both equities. It's a great question. And what's interesting is one of the most interesting evolutions is that the traditional long-only investors and many of the hedge fund managers today have slowly, uh, over the, the last decade, started to create what I'd refer to as crossover funds or crossover investments, where they too, recognizing the concept of fair disclosure and the efficiency of public markets, have opened up their portfolios to making direct investments in private companies, which gives them, to a certain degree, a great knowledge about the supply chain, gives them more knowledge about their own ecosystem of verticals within a specific technology or industry. Mass affluent and high net worth investors are generally very successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and themselves founders. They understand the value of their own company. They understand the value of their golfing buddies, companies, and their peers. And they get it. And what becomes interesting on the private side is those companies that are being invested in the alternative space on the private equity and venture capital side, those clients understand that and should be investing with professionals at whether it be Hightower and or other in order to gain access to some of the best money managers that 
allocate in that space. And that's really where they understand the benefit, the core of the economy, bottom layer of our ecosystem of the economy are those entrepreneurs and those founders. And that is really what you're gaining, at least on the private equity and venture capital side in a portfolio. And that access is critical to an an overall portfolio allocation. You're bringing up some interesting pieces in there that one private markets represents a very large portion of the value creation. I think there's 18,000 private companies that are in the U.S. alone that are worth over a billion dollars. That's significantly larger than the pool of public companies that are publicly traded, people have access to, et cetera. Now, as you think about data becoming more available and the innovation around data creating more transparency in private markets, How do you think about that in the context of what you said a little bit earlier about part of the premium that can be generated in private markets comes from a less efficient market, less transparency? How do you balance both of those things, both as an allocator to funds and also how should fund managers think about operating in a world that wasn't the 1990s or the early 2000s when both private equity and hedge fund managers probably had more of a information arbitrage to balance that out. I just love that comment because you've introduced what I always refer to edge, E-D-G-E. What is edge in the market? And the concept of innovation, the concept of technology leading that innovation, whether it be the concept of Hightower uh, leading an innovation of the RIA community, the financial markets are constantly evolving due to that innovation. Let me just give you an example and put this into perspective. In the 1970s and 1980s, If you were trading stocks in Geneva, Switzerland, or in London, you would literally take the order by phone from your client, you would cross the street, and then send a telex to New York City, to Wall Street, to enter that trade. Fast forward 10 or 15 years, suddenly you have a Quotron, and suddenly you have technology that allows you to enter the tickets, which are then, again, sent to the broker to then execute on the floor. Fast forward today, you can open up your app on your phone, and literally, we're witnessing the democratization of information on the public markets. Obviously, the private markets aren't there. You, Michael, actually were part of the innovation on the private market side at iCapital, and I believe Lawrence was a guest of yours some time ago. iCapital is, for instance, one of the companies at the forefront of innovating on the private market access side. But going back to data, the fact that the markets and most importantly, the most successful active managers have embraced technology and the innovative use of data going back 30, 40, 50 years in different forms. And every time there's an evolution and change within that space, there is a significant benefit and some group of investment professionals and their clients who make significant risk-adjusted returns off of that shift and change. Whether it be Jim Simons at Renaissance or Rentec, whether it be John Paulson during the subprime collapse and many others. Today, people are analyzing Twitter to understand sentiment in the markets. People are using consumer information that is anonymously, allegedly gleaned from large credit card providers to better understand where people are investing, allocating and spending money. So all of this is active and changing. And some of the companies that are at the forefront of that are these emerging firms that are very much in venture capital, private equity portfolios. And those are the ones that we really try to capture for our clients. How do you think about 
being a manager in today's world, having evaluated managers for the past 25 years, do you think because of access to data, it makes it harder for managers to outperform their peers? It's interesting. So first of all, there's a lot of noise, meaning there are now thousands of managers competing for similar information. What makes a great money manager? There is no perfect answer, but what I do discover is the managers that ultimately survive are managers who've been through multiple market cycles. Anyone who's been around for 10, 20, or 30 years who've lived through the global financial crisis, I always get frustrated when someone's been a one-trick pony. Someone who gets out of school, works as an analyst, let's say in the energy sector, there's an energy bull market, they make a fortune, open up their own fund, have a few, two or three, four good years. But then when, and God forbid, the, the market was suddenly to drop out in energy, they're sort of left on the top of the flagpole flapping in the wind because they've never encountered headwinds or difficulty. What you're really looking for are uh, those managers that understand change, understand change of technology, but also market change decimalization, Glass-Steagall, any type of regulatory change, all of this has an effect on their ability to generate returns for clients. And we really have to keep an eye on that and identify it. And listen, I'd love to say that I'm brilliant or my team is brilliant at identifying those changes. No, I'm simply listening. I go in and meet with managers with a team and we listen to what they're saying. Fortunately, as we meet some of the best money managers in the world, some of them will literally rock our world. They'll identify dislocations, arbitrage opportunities, or changes that we did not know about that we then, of course, share. I'll share with Stephanie Link, who heads up the investment solutions team and others. And that then provides us with an edge that we can then share with our advisor businesses, of which they're north of 100 and or their hundreds, if not thousands of clients. And it's really important that we move that along. And at the core of all of this, and I go over the ability for someone to have an edge to generate great risk-adjusted returns, it's really about people identifying the person behind the track record. So just because he's great at, let's say, managing money and energy, and then suddenly he's able to then migrate into a new strategy and shift and adjust, that now is someone who's exhibiting skill of flexibility, autonomy, and the ability to change with the markets. And that is a double-edged sword because sometimes change can be drift, and we get a little bit concerned when someone who's great at one investment strategy drifts into another. But at the same time, as markets change, the person needs to change. And we really have to spend a lot of time looking at the person. If they're arrogant, if they're humble, if they're stubborn, which would be a real negative personality trait, and just understand their brilliance of idea, their vision, and their ability for leadership. And all of that is just about people and understanding people. How do you go about that evaluative process? The process is multifaceted. It's typically initial phone calls, a number of meetings, just as you're doing with me and making me feel very much at ease. We try to do the same thing, not that we have them lie down on a couch and share their most intimate secrets, but most importantly, it's really trying to build a rapport. Bob Oros, the CEO of Hightower, Hightower is a real DNA uh, deal-making and putting together strategic relationships with our advisor businesses. And we use the same element when dealing with our third-party managers. They have to feel that you'd be a good partner. We try to pass along that sentiment both to the advisor businesses, the RIAs, and their clients, which is we're all partners together. So when evaluating the manager, you're going to have multiple meetings. You're going to discuss their strategy, their consistency of process, their consistency of terms and consistency of turns over time. I was in the Swiss Army earlier on in my career, 
And the Swiss Army always talked about the three C's, as they say, is um, commander, contrôler, corriger, which means you give the order, then you verify the order, and you then correct your order. It's very process-driven. And what I've discovered for a successful money manager, you really need that ability to be a leader, to give very clear direction, and most importantly, when things aren't going your way, have the ability to verify and adjust as needed. And that's really very critical with all of these money managers. You said something a little bit earlier that I found fascinating in the context, particularly in the world that we live in today, where macro forces may be impacting managers more and their businesses, their industries. So two-part question. One is, do you think that managers across private equity, venture, certainly hedge fund world, there's a strategy called global macro for a reason. But even in the private equity and venture world, do you think that managers need to be more cognizant of macro environment as they think about the strategy they have, how they invest? And then has that also changed the lens through which you look at and evaluate managers in today's current world? So I would look at it this way which is if someone's sitting in a room and there's a riot going on outside the room and they're able to continue to invest without really thinking about what's going outside of the room, I'd be a little concerned, meaning that they should already be planning on securing their technology, securing their laptop, figuring out some sort of an exit strategy to get out of that room. And I think we've been very fortunate post-World War II from a geopolitical perspective It's been an incredible run, both for the markets and for globalization. And we're clearly entering into a period of geopolitical forces that are having a real impact on the economy and supply chain, for instance. So in order to answer your question relatively clearly, if the managers today, whether it be private equity and technology or elsewhere, are not paying attention to what's going on internationally, globally, both with the supply chain and or politically and elsewhere, they have a blind spot. I think it's critical that they have an ability to have a comprehensive understanding of all the different risks. You're not just a money manager, but you also have to be a great risk manager. You also have to be a great administrator, accountants, because you've got to handle the accounting. You also have to do investor relations. You have to be able to then deal with your clients and investors, your partners. And of course, you have to be a good life coach or therapist as a successful money manager because you have to manage your team in a way that they want to come back to work every day, work with you, and most importantly, work through their bad trades, just as they generally work relatively well with their good trades and just keep them all on a level-headed and humble grounding. So as the alt space has evolved over time from this presumably smaller cottage industry on both hedge fund, private equity, into these now much larger industries, what in your mind has changed on the GP side, whether it's in terms of team, like you say, and how do you build a team? How do you build a business as well as how managers think about investing? So the industry has grown significantly. You can go back, I think there was a Forbes article, Forbes magazine in like 1969, either Fortune or Forbes, that spoke about how, and again, A.W. Jones created the first hedge fund back in mid 20th century. Back in 69, they were already talking about how the hedge funds were charging way too high fees and the industry would disappear. Then you had Barton Biggs famously in 2002, I think, or 2001, 
declare that we were entering into a bubble within the hedge fund industry. Fast forward 20 years, and the most recent research from Prequin, KKR, and a number of other firms are expecting approximately 2 to $3 trillion of new money flowing into the alternative investment field over the next two, two or three years. And the general partners, the third-party managers, expect a majority of that to come from the mass affluent high net worth and super high net worth channels, partially because it seems the pension fund world and endowment world are now pretty much fully invested with allocations of north of 50% in some cases. And right now they believe that there'll be more of a normalization as the mass affluent market starts to enter into that space and embrace that opportunity. So with that change and shift, I do believe there'll be significant growth in the area. And that's one of the reasons that myself and the team at Hightower are growing our overall business. I think with that comes a significant amount of demands for the third-party managers. And I think they're actually in favor, generally speaking, of the investor. And those demands are more regulatory, more regulation, which has forced a certain amount of transparency, whether it be form ADVs, periodic registration and disclosures to the regulators. I have to say it's a real burden for the managers, and sometimes it gets a little invasive. But that said, it clearly benefits individuals like myself and Hightower and our clients because we have more checks and balances and more ability to see relevant information periodically. And I think that's really beneficial. I also think that the overall market is becoming more efficient in the private markets. There's still a huge opportunity for accessing top quartile, if not top decile, performing managers, but there's significant risk dispersion. And that's one of the reasons why it's critical to have a seasoned team leading your investment in the alternatives space, because quite frankly, there is a very large return dispersion between the good, the bad, and may I say the ugly on the return side of third-party managers. That's a great segue into what you're building at Hightower and why you're building what you're building right now. So just for context, there's been significant growth in the independent wealth management channel where wealth managers are breaking away from the wirehouses the UBSs, Morgan Stanleys, Merrill Lynch's, et cetera, and going independent. And when they go independent, while they had a menu of private equity funds, hedge funds at these banks that they were able to access many of these top funds, they no longer have that. You've now built that at Hightower. How have you thought about approaching the alt space to serve your customers, which is your advisor customers who become Hightower advisors and then their end clients? So I am going to make a direct correlation to the Hightower DNA. One of the reasons I joined Hightower is just as I have a good understanding of the alternative investment world and the evolution of markets and technology and ongoing innovation, I believe that the Hightower model, the Hightower DNA is a winning solution for wealth management, specifically that the DNA of Hightower at its core is number one, they're innovating the overall business by acquiring and rolling up independent RIAs. And really what differentiates themselves is they're rolling them up and they're giving them a significant amount of autonomy and flexibility. Their founders are still active and still operating the business. And that flexibility serves the clients. Similar to some of your prior guests on your podcast, 
it really benefits the client to have that ability and that flexibility to not be sending down product to the channel, but most importantly, offering the best investment solutions at any given time to your clients. So that DNA that Bob Oros, our CEO, has adopted for Hightower, we're going to use that same DNA on the alternative investment side, which is that ability that Hightower has to forge and develop long-lasting strategic relationships with our advisor businesses. That's really my approach. I shared my view on that earlier in our conversation, which is we want to be preferred partners with our third-party managers, with our private equity, private credit, and real estate managers. We want to be good investors, thoughtful investors, long-term partners, and where possible, have preferred terms and a preferred relationship, whether that be an anchor, a seed, or eventually even an ownership. But currently, it's simply preferred terms and, in some cases, exclusive relationships, which is really unique and will differentiate our business from some of the other is and or other wealth management platforms out there. And we're really that critical size. And I think you touched on it earlier. There are different pools to fish in, in the investment world. And you've got obviously the very large firms that invest with some of the very well-known players, the Blackstones, the Carlisles and others. I'm, of course, a Carlisle alum, a proud Carlisle alum. And we, of course, will still be offering those solutions to our clients. But at the same time, Because of our size, it's sort of a sweet spot where we can be more middle market and offer solutions that are typically maybe more nichier, smaller, and at some times very interesting to generate better or enhanced risk-adjusted returns for our clients. And again, it's always providing that solution to our advisor businesses who can then share that with their clients. Is a lot of the decision to become more bespoke in the way that Hightower creates and provides its alternative solutions? Is it driven by the fact that you have 100 plus different advisor teams, some of whom may want different things? Absolutely. And again, that autonomy, the DNA has allowed, and the way Bob Oros has structured it is our teams have, and our advisor businesses have the flexibility to be autonomous and make the right business decisions and investment decisions for their clients. And my role and Stephanie Link's role at Hightower is to provide the best solution at any given time to the advisor businesses as it relates to both alternatives and equities and fixed income. How do you think about constructing the right alts business that provides the right types of products to various advisors in a world where, and I'm going to generalize here for a second, there's different sizes and scales of advisor teams, but some advisors have one CIO who covers public markets, private markets, maybe has one or two analysts. Even some of the larger multi-billion dollar RIA firms have maybe only a few people on manager selection, which would include alts. Some obviously are staffed up even more to cover their growing demand of alts, or if they're larger platforms themselves, 20, 30 billion of AUM, they're going to have some sort of in-house alts team that's focused on this. But that also makes it very hard for advisors to really canvas the alts market and see everything, which they have to do because they're fiduciaries. So in theory, they need to be finding the best possible products or investments for their clients. How do you think about the advisor market structure and how that world is built in terms of how you construct an alt solution for all these advisor teams? That is one of the main reasons I joined Hightower is 
this concept of transparency and what I'll use the term cross-pollination of ideas. Just as I will be originating what I believe to be top quartile, best-in-class third-party managers and share those solutions or possible solutions with our clients and advisor businesses, I'll also be talking to you, Michael. I'll be saying, hey, Michael, you're involved in this business. You have maybe better. I understand that I only know who I know. I'm aging out. I'm, I guess, the tail end of the boomer world, or as my daughter would call me a boomer, who's now 25, living in London, enjoying life. But at the same time, it's interesting. For instance, and I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent. The DNA of this community of alternate investments, some originated with Drexel Burnham Lambert under Michael Milken. Some originated from the merger arbitrage desk at Goldman Sachs. Some originated with Julian Robertson at Tiger, the Tiger Cubs. And it's fascinating to see the evolution of how the world has evolved and those relationships. Today, the venture community, the private equity world, is a whole new DNA, meaning these individuals who are having exits with 100, 200 million, if not a billion dollars, they are the new investors and they are the new founders. And to invest in that space, you really want someone, it's typically going to be a 30-year-old or a Gen Xer or possibly even a Gen Z or millennial. It depends how what, where you look at it, but that's it's a whole different class. So we have to cross-pollinate. And one of the things that Hightower offers, besides my getting ideas from you, and I'm sure you'll be calling me periodically, I hope, I welcome it. I offer the same open-door policy at Hightower where I want our clients to share their knowledge and their ideas about the private opportunities with their advisor businesses, and then those advisor businesses to share the same ideas with our team. We do have what I refer to as a central repository or a steering committee slash investment committee where we share all these ideas. And it's literally a brainstorming session where we sit down and go over time, statistics, relevant track record, the people, the edge, and you know how this could benefit an overall asset allocation and benefit individuals' portfolio with the caveat that each client is different and each advisor business has the autonomy to decide from a fiduciary perspective what best suits their client. You're bringing up a great point, which I think is so important for the continued evolution of alts in the advisor community, which is providing access to emerging managers versus established managers. Because when you think about the advisor community, the wealth management business, if we go to the business side of wealth management, it's to some extent an annuity business. Yes, clients can leave and move their money somewhere else, but it's generally very sticky when it comes to client retention. And sometimes the things that create less stickiness are bad investment decisions. And it's often easier to default to investing in the safer, less fireable allocations. So the big platforms and brands, the Carlisle's, the Blackstone's, et cetera, which are perfectly fine brands and very good funds. But there's safety in that for the advisor to understand why they do that and allocate to it. But how do you think about, like you say, I think the venture world is one in particular where sometimes first time or emerging managers tend to outperform the larger big brands, to some extent, just a function of fund size. It's easier to 5X a $50 million fund than it is a billion or $2 billion fund. So how do you think about the balance of providing access to emerging managers versus established managers? And where do you draw that line? You mentioned a fireable offense. And let me clarify, you're correct. There's a number of allocators and or investors 
that sometimes take or believe that they're taking a safe road by investing in a well-trafficked firm or a larger multi-billion dollar firm. And not to put a cold chill on everyone who's listening to this podcast, but if I was playing Jeopardy, I'd be like, what is Bernie Madoff for 500? And what is long-term capital management for 1,000? Meaning that just because it's a well-trafficked or well-known manager does not necessarily mean and immediately (laughs) validate and say it's a safe investment. And I think that's, again, the emphasis on having seasoned professionals looking at the deals. And I always look at this and going towards the discussion about emerging and established managers. I've already stated, I do believe that a manager that's survived in his business through multiple market cycles is a winning strategy. That is at the core of what we do. That said, there are exceptions. And part of our role and the reason that you want a professional team performing with experience, performing due diligence, is because an emerging manager, once you lift someone out of a Goldman Sachs comfort zone, or a Tiger Cub comfort zone, where they have all the infrastructure, the technology available to them, and the sourcing of ideas and resources, it's quite lonely to suddenly be in a room with a Bloomberg trying to make money and juggle all the different requirements to make money. And I'm always a little suspicious, and I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to the ability to simply lift someone out And then they'll start day one making money. Uh, Obviously, it doesn't apply to all strategies, but very often I think one should have a higher level of scrutiny on that strategy. That said, I'll give you an example of some situations or exceptions where recently I did a transaction where a family that had built one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world sold the company for $30 billion plus, launched a family office launched their first fund with their own money, and then launched fund two and seeded it with $250 million. And I then was an anchor alongside them with exclusive rights into that fund. And the reason, from my perspective, warranted the risk of being in an early stage opportunity was that these were operators who had just built one of the most well-known pharmaceutical firms. And there is no pharma company in the world that has the sophistication and or experience of these operators. So it was very easy for me to say with conviction, and this was just during the pandemic to a certain degree, it was a great opportunity to basically invest in that space and allocate. And that's very consistent with the DNA, going back to the strategic partnership approach of Hightower, where we will be in the near future, hopefully partnering in some cases with families and others who have proven to be successful operators and really want to be a partner of theirs and grow their firms with us and be good partners. I think that's really where the emerging manager piece is is really interesting. That gets to how you're thinking about this at High Towers. There's been recent press, and this is really around you joining the firm from First Republic, where High Tower is going to do more alts in-house. You can obviously access alts through platforms like the iCapitals, the cases, et cetera, of the world. What's made you want to do more in-house? What does that mean? And then where does that leave room for others in the ecosystem like these other platforms? And how do you think about how everything fits together? When we say building it in-house, I think it means providing solutions, in-house solutions of third-party managers, meaning that we are going to be evaluating and developing relationships, both exclusive with preferred terms and or strategic at times in nature that we will then provide as a solution to our advisor businesses 
who will then offer them to their clients. And that will be really the focus. And that's consistent with the overall Hightower DNA. And we'll continue on that. And then compared to what was built at First Republic, and I absolutely loved working with the team there and uh, continue to interact often, there are many parallels with what we are working on at Hightower. And here, the main focus will be the amount of care and service that we will provide to our wealth management teams, those advisor businesses that Bob Oros and the acquisition team have worked so hard at bringing together and providing infrastructure and support and service. What makes you and the Hightower think now is the time to do something like this? And this really gets to the question around education. I saw this when we were building iCapital. Education of advisors about alts was so important. And to put it in context, I think most advisors, their client portfolios generally have between one to 5% allocation in alts for context. And this may reflect on Hightower's advisors' sophistication is that I think Bob recently said that clients have about 9% allocated to alts across Hightower advisors' portfolios. So more than the average wealth manager RIA, what makes you think this is right time, right place, and how much education needs to be done to advisors on alts? So first of all, the markets clearly, just talking today, it's perfect time to, to be speaking with you. And the markets are, to a certain degree, underperforming. It's painful. People who have a nest egg and we're counting on a certain revenue, dividends, and others are suddenly looking at their bank account and are concerned. And my argument and my position is we never want to be in that position. And you really want to have the opportunity to be in a portfolio that will generate returns. And as we stated earlier, we're expecting about $3 trillion to be flowing in to the alternative investment world from the high net worth sector, the RIA and wealth management side. And we're hopefully be continuing to lead the way in the democratization of access and technology innovation that should help us and our clients embrace alternatives and start adding more alternatives to their portfolios. And education is part of that, part of its technology, part of its transparency. My joke has always been that alternative investors going back 30 or 40 years have often been misinformed. Allocators have often been misinformed or it's misunderstood. And I would suggest that there's a wide spectrum, even within our advisor businesses, our 100 plus advisor teams, there's a wide spectrum of knowledge. We have some extremely sophisticated teams, and then we have some teams have either heard had one bad experience or just a little skeptical, which I think is healthy, towards alternatives. So part of the effort that Stephanie Link, who runs Investor Solutions at Hightower, and myself will be to take on and lead process of education, seminars, and to a certain degree, events that will expose what we believe some of the leading managers to share, educate, and help clients and our advisor businesses learn more, and most importantly, be comfortable and how this complements their current asset allocation across equities and fixed income. And it's funny, I was just on a call with another very large firm that is a private equity and real estate investor, and they have a teach-in now. They have this online solution where they're trying to sell this or promote this with advisor businesses that they can go online and learn about alternatives. And I think that messaging and that effort 
with the benefit of technology, since many of us are on Zoom, Teams, and other software, pretty much everyone can access webinars with ease. We're going to see this ongoing education slowly flow through the entire investor world. How much do you think more exposure to alts for advisors will help them with client acquisition and retention? It's a great question. And one that we think about, I think about every day. My best thinking sometimes is done in the shower, not to share too much information. And I think the old days when you would play golf, and I'm a mediocre golfer at best, but on the 18th hole, I remember we'd sit around and the real estate guys would be like, hey, did you see that deal on such and such Park Avenue or it sold for XYZ? And then one of my equity partners would say, oh, I just bought a Tesla. I bought the stock and it's a great, how much Tesla? And, oh, and there's Facebook's coming, which was originally, before Meta was Facebook, there was a pre, pre-IPO opportunity. Nowadays on the 18th hole, they're talking about fund deals. They're talking about, did you see the latest deal from XYZ fund manager? Did you access this fund is building where, industrial warehouses in the southeastern United States for same day, next day delivery? So with the pandemic and the demand for e-commerce and with the migration or the great migration pre-pandemic and post-pandemic to Florida, Georgia and the Carolinas, suddenly if you own and are a developer of real estate, that's a huge opportunity. Those are stories that are now being shared on the 18th hole. So I think that's really where those stories are going to start to permeate and be shared across advisor businesses, RIAs, and their clients. And that's going to drive a lot of the interest and excitement for investing. How much do you think certain categories that end clients understand? So sports is an example. feels like the sports world is financializing. There's now multi-billion dollar funds that are investing in and buying stakes in sports teams, like an Arctos, for example. Then something like an industrial warehouse business is something that a lot of people can understand. They can touch and feel it. Maybe they're a consumer of that product. How much do you think that's important in helping end clients understand and or advisors? Because end clients might say, this is what I really like. I wear these clothes. I wear Roan or Rory, or I'm a supporter of Manchester United. And there are funds that own pieces of that. So then therefore I can own a piece of that. How important do you think that is in helping alts go mainstream, both with end clients, as well as their advisors who are allocating on behalf of them? So what you just described, Michael, I'm going to bring you into Hightower and you're going to speak uh, one of our next roundtables because you just hit the nail on the head, which is we have to make it real. We have to be able to tell a story. And it's a bit like KISS, keep it simple, stupid, which is we have to be able to tell the story. These are real investments, bricks and mortar and opportunities. Now, I remember Peter Davies from Lansdowne back in 2000, I think, was explaining to me how Manchester United was the most recognized a sports franchise in the world and the ability to generate income from that or revenue. And I was like, Manchester United? Well, I don't like football, soccer. What is it called? You know, j- joking aside, you're right. And it's really a We're going to have to have a conversation about what you call it, having lived in Europe. Exactly. Well, it's fine. <laughs> I still think that they should actually, to make soccer slash football or European football more interesting, they should w- widen the goals a little bit because there needs to be more scoring. But that's a heretic point of view for my nephews who get very upset whenever I bring that up, who've lived in over, overseas most of their childhood. But going back to the storytelling, it has to resonate. And it's really critical that we be able to, on the investor side and on the solution side, be able to describe and tell the story in an eloquent way that's simple to understand. There's a firm that we're looking at potentially doing a transaction with that has a significant amount of social media followers, which is extremely interesting to some of the venture capital firms that invest in consumer products because they want a high net promoter score and NSC, and they also want access 
to influencers who can promote the product. And suddenly that social influencer platform gets co-investment rights. And that's something we're looking at. We may not do the transaction, but we may have an opportunity to get exclusive co-investment rights in some of these transactions with some of the leading venture capital and private equity firms. So these are just opportunities that I think are fascinating, interesting, and will resonate, hopefully, with our advisor businesses. You bring up a really interesting point, which is direct co-investing. We've seen this happen on the institutional side. So like the very sophisticated pension plans, Canada, CPPIB, Canada's big pension plan, comes to mind as one example of that, where they partnered with Silver Lake to do a lot more direct and co-investing, in part because they wanted to shrink their manager relationships and in part because they wanted to pay less fees. But to our conversation, the last point you made about making it real and tangible, direct investments can serve that purpose or co-investing with a manager. How do you think the co-investment landscape will come to the RIA or wealth management world? We've seen that happen in the institutional world. When do you think and how do you think that shifts to the world that you live in? And maybe that's a part of Hightower's package of solutions is you're going to do more of that than the traditional advisors. So I'd love to hear how you're thinking about that aspect. Well, I can't give away all of our secret sauce, but I could comfortably say if you looked at my, and you did look at my background extensively, I have a background in structuring, in derivatives, and in other, in financial engineering to a certain degree. <laughs> and we believe uh, there will be uh, over time at Hightower an opportunity to not only invest in third-party managers, but also marry that with the opportunity to generate co-investment rights or co-investment opportunities, as you said, with reduced fees in some case, which is very beneficial. And again, we want to be absent of conflicts and we pass along those benefits to our clients. We always have that fiduciary element in mind. I believe that it's already coming to the RIA world, the co-investment piece, and I believe it'll be embraced because again, it goes back to the concept of partner and being a good partner. There's a significant opportunity for overflow in private equity and venture capital deals. But most importantly, emphasis, and I really want to close with that on this topic, is you need a seasoned and experienced team to do that. And really, that's one of the main reasons that Bob reached out to myself to join Hightower. And the effort at Hightower is to not only emphasize that, but provide the best solution for advisor businesses and our clients. It's really critical to the success going forward. Are there specific industries, categories of the alt space strategies that are most interesting to you right now? There are. And I want to be cautious because there's one area. Well, let's put it this way. I would be focusing to give away not too much of the secret sauce. We would be focusing on areas in the economy where there are significant tailwinds that do not have much public equity available to access that industry. And that industry is primarily comprised of private companies developing. Now, that could be hypothetically blockchain to a certain degree, but it could also be several other industries that have a similar notation of incredible amount of capital that will be flowing in over the coming several years and firms that are just too small to be public. And that is, I believe, a significant opportunity to develop that. Back in the day, we created an index in 1995, sorry, it dates me, called the World Wide Web Index. And we were selling warrants, a list in Luxembourg, on this index. And there were companies, UUNet, CompuServe, there was Netscape, there were all these crazy companies, all of them, 
have been acquired, all of them have taken out, and all of them have been incredibly successful. And that's sort of the same idea in the alternative world where we really want to have and be investing in sectors where there's significant tailwinds. Healthcare would be another sector in addition to blockchain and financial innovation or fintech innovation, which I know you're very, very knowledgeable about. Of course, ESG, impact investing where I think there's some significant opportunities. And it's given me great pleasure and, quite frankly, excitement to see how much high net worth money has been flowing into ESG over the past several years. It's significant, meaningful, and I think it's good for the overall investment community. Do you think investors think more about ESG now when they think about investing? And that's now one of the lenses through which they are investing capital either directly or into funds? I think it's a combination of factors. I'd like to think that there too, a lot of investors believe there'll be tailwinds. Everyone's had, I think, a very positive experience to see the growth within ESG over the last several years. I also believe that there's a significant amount of disruption and innovation in that space, whether it be related to wind, solar, real estate, and energy. It's an extraordinary area that has been embraced, at least by the alternative investment community. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how impact investing space evolves over time. It's really only become a term 12 plus years ago or so. So it still has iterations to go. And now I can't let you go without asking you about blockchain crypto because you mentioned it. But from an advisor's perspective, how do you think advisors should be approaching the blockchain and crypto space? Well, I will tell you, the advisor businesses are very aware we are performing a significant amount of work in this space. And I believe, and I know based on my own research, that blockchain is disruptive and innovative and is going to make everyone's lives better in the future. And we continue to review that carefully. I think it's been interesting. We did a lot of due diligence on some funds that were investing in certain digital assets and ran into some difficulty only because it was hard to find an auditor who would sign off, at least some of the mainstream or main auditors would not sign off on valuations of digital assets, which to a certain degree, and the way we approach the business at Hightower is a no-go for allocating. If the audit or there's a significant change of auditors in a limited or short period of time, that's usually not a good fact pattern, let's put it that way. But generally speaking, we continue to review it. We think it's exciting, but blockchain is really an incredibly disruptive opportunity that we believe alternative investments and investors and financial technology firms will be embracing, evolving, and adapting to rapidly. It sounds like what you just described and the way in which you described it is part of the advantage of having a platform and being on top of that because different advisors may have their own differing views on crypto blockchain based on their client base, how they think about the crypto space. But it's because of the way you approach it, it sounds like you're able to take a long-term view. Right now, the crypto space has taken a hit we can all look at the numbers and the prices of different crypto assets, but it doesn't mean that the technology innovation over time won't be valuable. Obviously, there will be winners and losers, but it feels like you captured the benefit for having an alt solution sitting atop many different advisors who may want to do different things. Going back to the concept of, and I use the term cross-pollination, I'll jump into the term seeding, which is we want to plant a lot of seeds strategically in all of our client portfolios, or at least 
suggest to our advisor businesses a number of solutions for seedlings or seeds that could be beneficial for them that will turn into very successful forests. And that's really what we're doing. Whether they take that or act on it is to a certain degree up to them. They have full autonomy. We're here to serve them and service them. The last question that I always ask every guest on the podcast is, what is their favorite or most interesting alternative investment? It doesn't have to be Related to Hightower could be anything, but what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment you've ever made, come across, or intrigued by right now? So there's no one. So first of all, I look at it as a portfolio. I will not go all in on one investment. That's not the way I've ever operated. It'll be a sprinkling of dust on a number of opportunities that I think we can get five times or 10 times the return on our money. It's those investments when you're sitting in a room and identifying a brilliant idea And now as a tangent, one of my questions when I interview analysts to come work for me, I always ask them about how a manager will cheat and whether or not they have the analytical ability to understand and imagine what can go wrong with an investment. The reverse is true too, which is if an analyst is sitting with a money manager, he may give you that next idea that's going to be the next subprime short trade. And the question is, do I, do you? And does our analyst that's doing the visit have the ability to appreciate that and understand that? So my best investment was short subprime, most likely. My second best investment was probably avoiding altogether ever investing with Bernie Madoff. (laughs) And to a certain degree, Bill Conway at Carlisle will always say your best deal is the deal you say no to. And so I would answer it that way, which is short subprime and then saying no at the right time. So on that point, have to ask the question, what do you think are the most important skills or quality that enable you to do that? I have a background in trading, trading markets, derivatives across all the spectrum, many of the more sophisticated strategies. So you need knowledge. You need to have had a journey that allows you to have a certain amount of skepticism, but the right amount of knowledge to be able to identify and pick up on inconsistencies, impossibilities, and or difficulties of someone to do it. And lastly, just read people, understand their tell and understand when they're obfuscating, when they're being inconsistent, changing the story and or just not being real. I've been in a situation where I was with a a brilliant manager who just flew off, had a moment of incredible anger to a subordinate during the meeting. And it was so disconcerting and upsetting that I remember leaving with my team saying, even if he were to be a great money manager, his team is not gonna stay with him for a long period of time. That was embarrassing for us, embarrassing for him. And again, we're investing in people and their ability to maintain their business successfully over time. So that's really important to us. You've brought this full circle. It's all about people, which is what you said in the beginning. So this was fantastic episode. Really enjoyed the conversation, Robert. Thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast and congrats on the new role with Hightower. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com and follow me on Twitter at at Michael Stigmore and at Goes Alt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going mainstream.